couple things I want to mention this morning before we get into the sermon portion of our time together. One is that we have a whole bunch of teenagers that are emerged this morning at Alberta Bible College, so I encourage you to be praying for them and ask God to bless them as they're away from us today. I wanted to echo what Jonathan said about the pictorial directory. Um, I said to Hope through an email or text or something the last couple of days, I got to get my picture to you. We haven't yet. So don't be like the Carters. Get your picture in, okay? We might take a selfie this morning and get it up there or something. We do have Good Friday coming up. And so at 10 o'clock on Good Friday, I hope that you're here. I hope that you uh, invite someone to come with you. And I think that's going to be a blessed day as we share some time with the Oak Park Church of Christ together on Good Friday here. God's going to bless us through that day. And then I wanted to mention that Bruce Clark is in the hospital. We all uh, know that Bruce is here every Sunday and does all the things that he does that are so positive for our church family. He has had extremely high blood sugar. Uh, He is diabetic, and his blood sugar has been through the roof. And Bruce needs to be encouraged to take care of himself well. And so please be praying for Bruce as he recovers from uh, what has been a difficult time for him the last few days. For, for about the last week at least, he hasn't been feeling well. You may have noticed that even. He wasn't feeling great. And uh, yesterday was kind of a climax of that. So he's in the hospital, and we want to see him get better and, and be well. So we want to be praying for Bruce for sure. And now, John is going to read a piece to us. And maybe, maybe before you start this, John, I just want to draw your attention again to the poster here, the, or the banner, for the Minor Prophets. I, I was looking at this again this morning, and I've thought several times as I glanced at the, at the image that's up there, at the, at the gaze that is present, what's in that prophet's eyes. And I think he's probably looking at Israel, and there's some things that are not pleasing him. He doesn't have a smile on his face. But there's also a sense, I, I think, in which he's looking towards something and longing. And we're going to hear some more about that longing and fulfillment today in the prophet Malachi. John? Listen to the Almighty God, Yahweh. His heart sings over you. I have never changed. My love for you remains the same. From the days of old to the end of the ages, my heart is a mystery to you. Look deeply and see its every hue. Like the colors of the treasured gems, a rainbow of brilliance and beauty, shining the light of my glory, the crowning jewel, proclaiming my victory. Begin to trust in my goodness. Let my grace and mercy fill you. Your sins are forgiven, pure as can be. Each day your character is more like me. Jesus carried my heart to the crimson cross. It was beaten, rejected, and crucified. Death cannot keep me from reaching you. You are saved, restored. And made new. Today and forever, I have rescued you. 
If you choose to walk justly with me in this life, I will guide you and protect you all of the way. At your side, sharing the intimacies of your day. May your soul be filled with abundant joy. Your desires for hope forever restored. Together we hold each other's hearts. With honor and reverence, never shall part. You live in my heart. My heart reigns in you. Entwined in sacred serenity. Reflecting our love into eternity. That was a positive message, and we're going to see a positive message today. You know, first of all, everybody knows that we have been waiting all winter long for the snow to go away. It has been pathetic. It's been awful. It's been deep. It's been cold, and we've been looking for it to go away. And it's not gone yet, but I think it's on the way out. So we have some good news this morning, even before we start that the weather is already on the way to being better. And I'm thankful to God for that. It's a good thing that things are warming up. But today I want you to watch for some more good news, some foreshadowing of God's completion of his plan. So watch for great news, even in the midst of this message from Malachi, that sometimes isn't great news, but ultimately it certainly is. I want you, if you would, Evan, you want to move me forward there? And then I'll see if I can do it. Yeah. Was that me or you, that last one? Me? You? You. Okay. I may, I may depend on you more. Turn to page 665, or 765 in your Bibles, if you're underneath the seats. And if you're in your own Bibles, not if you're underneath the seats, by the way. If the books are underneath the seats, if those are the ones you're using. And if you're in your own Bible, turn to Malachi. And I want to ask you this question. Two questions, actually. First of all, are there any sinners here this morning? Any, any sinners, okay? I've got a couple of people who immediately raised their hands, which makes me think that, that they were worse than the others. But anyway, yeah, we're, we're all in the same circumstance this morning in terms of being sinful, for sure. The second question I want to ask you is, is there anybody here who would love to see the world be different than it is? And I think, again, there's an awful lot of us here who would feel the same way. So we've got some people in here who would like to have their lives be potentially different than they are. And then we also would love to see the world in general be different than it is. And what I want to say from Malachi this morning is that God is the one who is doing just those things. God is the one who is doing something, has done something to put us in a better position than we have ever been before And he certainly is going to do the same thing for the rest of the world. But it didn't all start perfectly uh, from the beginning. And so some background here. We already know about the Babylonian captivity. It's already been mentioned this morning. That the Jews at one point got to the point where their sins were just heaped up so high that God said, that's enough. And he warned them for decades. Uh, In some cases for hundreds of years, he warned them that he was eventually going to send them into captivity. And he does. But in about 530 B.C. or so, the Jews start returning. When the Persians came into power and took over Babylon, then they started releasing the Jews to go back to their land. When they went back, they were able to rebuild the temple. And so the temple was, in fact, rebuilt about 516 B.C. 
And the hope is that God then is going to be with the people by then, that he's going to come and dwell with them. And in fact, life was progressing. They were, for a time there, kind of doing the things that God wanted them to do. And especially under the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, there was movement, positive movement in terms of what God wanted them to do. But in about 433 BC, Nehemiah, who'd been doing good things and rebuilding the temple uh, first with Ezra and rebuilding the temple and then also with the wall coming up and Nehemiah having a, a huge role in building the wall, things began to go downhill. Uh, they were not progressing the way that they had progressed. And this was a problem. Now, it used to be that there was sinfulness in Israel. And so, even under Nehemiah, uh, before, uh, is this the right slide? Okay, that's right. Perfect. Okay, I got you. So under Ezra and Nehemiah, some things had happened. They reinstituted the temple worship. They dramatically helped the poor. That was a good thing for sure. They stopped mixed marriages. So if you, like if you were to go back and read Ezra and Nehemiah, these are the kind of things that had happened that were positive. They reinstituted the keeping of the Sabbath, which is a good thing. And so good things had happened. There was progress. But as I said, they started to, again, see things go downhill. And so after having gotten the people to do these kinds of things, then they went back kind of to where they were before. And this is where they were before. Abundant idolatry, horrible social oppression and injustice, blatant immorality, excessive greed, child sacrifice, corrupt leadership, no consistency and devotion to Yahweh. These are the things that were part of Israel prior to the captivity. And the people started moving back in the same kind of direction when Nehemiah left in 433 and went back to Babylon. So you've got, or back to Persia. So you've got people who have gone into exile because of all of these sins. They have then come out. Some really good things have started to happen. A rebuilding of the temple, rebuilding of the city, rebuilding really of the whole culture of devotion to Yahweh. But when Nehemiah leaves, things start to turn bad again. And so here are some of the things after their return. They began almost immediately to doubt God's love. In fact, if you look at Malachi chapter 1, look at verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? And so they were questioning God from the, almost the moment they go back into uh, the promised land again and re- are rebuilding the walls in the temple they're still doubting God's love, namely because he had punished them so ruthlessly, which I kind of get. I understand how with that kind of punishment, they might doubt it a bit, but their sins had been so atrocious that God had sent them into captivity. They also began to intermarry again, which had been a huge problem before because when they were in Israel prior to that, the Canaanite peoples were there. They eventually got rid of a lot of peoples, but there still was a remnant and they intermarried which was causing all kinds of problems in terms of the devotion to to Yahweh. And that led to all of the the idolatry, even things like child sacrifice. All of that was happening because the Israelites had intermarried. There's a corrupted priesthood. Uh, The leaders themselves are not doing what God wants them to do. The sap that was being ignored, tithes are not offered. And so when they come back, it's not very long before the people of God are in the same kind of place, or at least moving to the same kind of place that they had been before. And Malachi comes on the scene 
in the midst of that kind of downhill move on the part of Israel. They're sliding, and Malachi feels like he needs to correct them. But the message is, although a message on one hand of judgment, it's also a message at the same time of great news. So let's look first at what happens with the judgment. Chapter 1, verse 6 through 14, is a place that talks specifically about the sins of the people. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I'm a father, where is the honor due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's temple is, table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured or crippled diseased animals and offer them a sacrifice, you should accept them from your hands, says the Lord. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. And so God is to be honored. But people who should be honoring God with all of their hearts find themselves offering to him that which is substandard. And God is not pleased. Look at chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. For the lips of a priest, here we're talking now about the leaders. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he's the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty, so I've caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you've not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. And so the priests themselves are guilty of all kinds of sin before God. Look at verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why did we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god, As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. And we could keep reading, but the point obviously is that God is fed up with the people's sins. He's tired of this. He he sent them into captivity for 70 years. They should have learned a lesson, and they didn't. Parents, have you ever gotten absolutely fed up? Like, for example, 
Have you told your 12-year-old or your 14-year-old time after time after time after time to clean their room? Like there are some kids, it doesn't matter how many times you tell them, they are not going to clean their room. And I have knowing smiles all over the group right now. As I'm looking around and seeing parents, and they're all thinking, yeah, that's my kid. How did you know? How do you think I knew? Because this is the experience that we have. As human beings, we tend to listen to those who give us instruction. And certainly, we listen to the instruction of God, and we end up doing exactly the same thing over and again. Chapter 3, verse 8. Same kind of thing. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruits, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, if you just do what I ask. But we, again, tend to be a people who, instead of just doing what God asks us to do, is constantly returning to our own way. This is simply human beings being human beings. And so despite the Jews going into exile for a long period of time, things actually have not dramatically changed. And this is where God's grand fulfillment begins to take place. Right at the point when God's people are not doing what God wants them to do. It is very much like a passage that says, even while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Because right at the point when again God's people are not doing what God wants them to do, God begins to unfold a plan. And Malachi actually shows us that plan. First of all, there is in fact renewed judgment. We could look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, chapter 3, verses 2 through 5, or chapter 4, verse 1. In every one of those passages, there's a mention specifically of God now judging the people again. They may have thought that all the judgment was over when they came back from Babylon. Everything was now going to be fine, but it wasn't. Judgment actually continues. But the judgment is not God's final answer. And this is where all of what we've done with the minor prophets begins to come together. Because there is, in fact, at this point, an entirely new relationship that comes with the day of the Lord. And I want you to look at chapter 3, verse 1. There's still judgment here. God is still saying to the people, I will no longer tolerate this kind of behavior. But look what he does. Chapter 3, verse 1. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. 
Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. It seems to me like this passage, like these verses, are all of a sudden turning things around and moving them back toward what God wants them to be because God himself is going to act. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire for a launder, or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. And I want to ask, how is this going to happen? How is it that the renewal is going to take place? He has judged them. He sent them off into captivity. They've come back. They've continued to sin. And now God's going to renew things. But how is he going to renew it? And what we need to see first is that it's absolutely by his initiation. Things will not be renewed because God's people all of a sudden start doing what they're supposed to do. They have never really done what God wants them to do. We don't really ever do what God wants us to do. We know that. And so what happens to change it? What brings the renewal? And the answer, of course, is the coming of Messiah. And so these verses in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, some of those verses are specifically mentioned in the New Testament. You're going to find them mentioned, for example, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 10. You're going to find it in Mark chapter 1, verse 2. You're going to find it in Luke chapter 7, verse 27. As the prophet's words about what God is doing in terms of renewing things is specifically mentioned in the Gospels as referring to Jesus Christ and his coming. And so the day of the Lord that's coming, while it's filled with wrath and judgment on one hand, becomes actually the blessing not only for God's people, but for the entire world as he brings his message of hope and salvation and forgiveness and grace and love and peace and purity, forgiveness, all these things come to God's people through the person of Jesus, really in response to God's people not doing what they ever should have done. They have been sinning from the beginning. They continue to sin. There's no real change after the exile. And so God decides, and in fact had decided for generations before, that he was going to send Jesus to rectify everything. Now I want you to look at chapter 4, verse 2. Same kind of thing. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Just think of the joy of a calf released from from its stall, able to run through the fields because of what God is doing. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. What day? What day is he going to do these things? 
And of course, the answer again is, it comes ultimately through Jesus. Look at verse 5. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to the fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. When does he do that? Well, we know where that's at. Who's he talking about when he says that? He's going to send someone beforehand. Who comes beforehand? John the Baptist comes beforehand. And the New Testament says that this specific passage in chapter 4 is fulfilled by the presence and the coming of John the Baptist as a messenger, a forerunner of Jesus. And so there is not just a sense, but a, an authenticity to this, a real factual fulfillment, really, of everything that we've gone through. And this is all led up to something and pointed in a direction throughout the minor prophets, coming to the point where Jesus becomes the fulfillment of God's desire for all of creation and certainly for all of humankind, including his people. And Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, shows this as well as any in terms of the specific fulfillment that's there, Jesus fulfilling the destiny and the direction of where the prophet said God was taking the world. Well, when we look at all of that then, what have we learned? What have we learned from the minor prophets? And I would say that we have learned some wonderful things. Like, for example, prior to Christ, there seems very little reason to hope in a positive future for humankind. You know, I hear all the time from people that they think the world is getting better. In fact, I hear people say all the time that the world's getting better, and because it is, we don't have to worry so much about our commitment to Jesus. I've heard people say this. We don't have to worry so much about our commitment to Jesus as Lord because the world is actually getting better. And I would call that into question. I don't know that it is. It seems to me like there is a way that human beings tend to go, and that way is not in the direction of the Lord's will for all of creation. But God is doing something about that. And he does it specifically in the person of Jesus. And so God refuses to let things rest there. I think we see that in the Minor Prophets. He's not detached. He's not removed. He's not separate. When he does come, he doesn't leave things exactly the way they are. He doesn't just punish humankind and then just leave us dead and dying with no opportunity for a change. Instead, God actually does something. And what he does is he sends Jesus. So that Jesus Christ is the blessed hope for the future of God's people and for all of creation. And so while we we grieve that the winter of the world is still present, there is a spring that really is coming. And Jesus is the one who brings that spring. And he brings it not just so that we can have our sins forgiven and go from here and enjoy heaven. 
but he brings a new opportunity for all of creation to be changed. And the prophet is taking us just exactly in that direction where God's newness through Christ, through Messiah, through the kingdom, through the new king becomes established and we have a chance to see something wonderful take place. So I ask at the beginning if there were any sinners here. There were some. I ask in the beginning if anybody wanted the world to be different. And I think everybody does. What the minor prophets have done is taken us into God's answer to at least those two massive questions. And that is incredibly great news. That God, through Jesus, has restored for humankind and all of creation something beautiful and wonderful and good and relationship with Him. And there is reason for singing. There is reason for joy for us to be excited about what God is doing in our world. And we get to enter into this. We get to be part of this. God is doing something new, and then he invites us in to participate with him in what it is that he's doing. And I just can't think of, I can't think of anything more purposeful in life than that. I can't think of anything more joy-filled than that kind of service, knowing that when I act, when I do something, On the Lord's behalf, I am contributing to what God is doing in renewing our world. So I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what you're excited about. I don't know all the things that are happening in your lives that might be negative in some ways. But I can tell you that in the big picture of things, God is doing a grand, new, wonderful thing that his love and grace are flowing to the world and that we get to share in what it is that he's doing because of our Messiah, Jesus, who unites us together with him and gives us a chance to participate in this. We need to enter in with all of our hearts to this kind of, of grand plan of God as he works out in our world what it is that he's doing. The prophets have taken us there They've showed us this. We have a chance to be different than the children of Israel were in response to what God was doing. And I'm so grateful that it's Jesus Christ who gives us that chance. Let's pray. Lord, you are indeed doing something grand and wonderful. And you have enabled us to be part You've asked us to enter in. We have a responsibility here. And for that, we praise you and thank you. And so God, help us to respond to what it is that Jesus has done by entering with all of our lives, all our hearts, all our focus, all our dreams and hopes about the future. Help us to enter into what Jesus is doing with all of that and to participate with you, Lord, in what it is you're working out. We know that this opportunity cost you your life. We know that this opportunity cost you coming from your place with the Father to be with us here so that you could renew your creation. We praise you and thank you that you've done that for us. Help us, God, with all our hearts to enter in to what it is that you're doing. We pray through Jesus. Amen.